from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, Tell the whole community of Israel, On the tenth of this month, every one of your families must procure for itself a lamb, one apiece for each household. The lamb must be a year old male and without blemish. You shall take it from either the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And then, with the whole assembly of Israel present, it shall be slaughtered during the evening twilight. They shall take some of its blood and apply it to the two doorposts and the lentils of every house in which they partake for the land. That same night, they shall eat its roasted flesh, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. This is how you are to eat it, with your loins girt, sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. You shall eat like those who are in flight. It is the Passover of the Lord. For on this same night I will go through Egypt, striking down every firstborn of the land of both man and beast, and executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I the Lord. For the blood will mark the houses where you are. Seeing the blood, I will pass over you. Thus, when I strike the land of Egypt, no disruptive blow will come upon you. The word of the Lord. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. You have come to believe. You are convinced that you are God's only one. The gospel of
The mask is just something that you got to do. Something you got to get done to get on with your weekend. Their faith never seems to go any deeper than that. God have mercy on them. If someone asks me what I think is the biggest single problem facing the Catholic Church today, scandals notwithstanding, I would answer without any hesitation that is the widespread loss of faith in our Lord's real presence in the Blessed Sacraments. That is the biggest problem. All the other problems the Church faces today, as serious and as pressing as so many of them are, they all pale in comparison to this one, and I would suggest to you most of them emanate from this one. When you come to Mass, when you come forward to receive Holy Communion, Father holds up the host, the sacred host, he says, the body of Christ. You say, Amen. And the word Amen means, yes, it is true. So when you say that word Amen, you are acknowledging before God that you believe that what you are receiving is, in fact, the body of Christ, hidden under the appearance of bread, the blood of Christ, hidden under the appearance of wine. Under either species, you're receiving Jesus Christ, full and entire body, blood, soul, and divinity. But is that really what the majority of Catholics in our country today believe? No, I think it isn't. No way. At least that's what all the facts and all the evidence would seem to indicate. The results of all the most recent surveys conducted among Catholics by sources outside of the church and then confirmed by sources inside the church show that about 70% of Catholics either do not know, do not understand, simply do not believe what the church teaches and has always taught about the real, true, substantial, and abiding presence of our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a very serious matter. For us it can't get any more serious than this. Because the Holy Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life. The Holy Eucharist is the greatest of the seven sacraments that we are receiving, not just the grace of Jesus Christ, receiving Jesus Christ himself. And without his Eucharistic presence, according to Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, the Catholic Church is just another Christian denomination among thousands. Without the Eucharistic presence in the tabernacle which we call the living heart of every Catholic Church, our churches in spite of the goodness of the people gathered together in them are essentially meeting houses and prayer halls and not much more. Now at this point, we've got to be able to make a critical theological distinction about the ways in which God is present. What we call the modality of God's presence. Yes. God is present everywhere, 
Spiritually, God is present everywhere. God is omnipresent. There's no place you can be in the heavens or on the earth that God is not. But in the Holy Eucharist, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh, true God and true man is uniquely present, sacramentally present, not just spiritually present, he is also substantially present, bodily present, present in his physical reality, present in his divinity and his humanity. Keep going. Present in his divinity and his humanity. And by the will of God the Father in heaven, the sacred humanity of Christ is the greatest source of graces, blessings, strength, and help, and consolation, and power given for our lives, given for those who believe. Now tonight, I'm going to speak about the sixth chapter of the Gospel of St. John, part of which I just read to you, and our Lord's first revelation of his greatest gift to us, the gift of himself in the Eucharist. It was in John chapter 6 that Jesus gathered together the apostles and the rest of his disciples in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it was there in the synagogue he told them something he knew was going to shock them all. Something that would many of them to turn their backs on him and walk away from him and never follow him again. And he said to them, I myself am the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on my head. And Jesus says this over and over again. And the Jews hear it. They know what he's saying. But it's just too much for them. It's too much even for some of his own disciples. They can't believe their ears. They see each other. Where's what a talk is hard to take. Who can stand it? He said, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, why would our Lord have said these things? Why would he say these things so incredible and so shocking? Why would he insist time and time again that they eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, to answer that question, we have to think back over 3,000 years to the time of Moses in the Exodus. The time when God was getting ready to free his chosen people, the Israelites, from centuries of hard slavery in Egypt. And you'll remember it was God's plan at that time to free the Israelites and to punish the cruelty of the Egyptians by sending ten plagues. Ten supernatural disasters that he inflicted upon the Egyptians. Never God had sent nine plagues, as awful as they were, Egypt was close to collapse, but the Pharaoh's heart was still hard. The Pharaoh refused the Israelites their freedom. So finally God sent the tenth plague, the most terrible of them all. And in that final plague, God sent the angel of death, a destroyer, to strike down the first one of the Egyptians. But before that happened, God commanded Moses to have every Israelite family take a lamb, a spotless male lamb, and slaughter, sacrifice it. 
and they were to take the blood of the lamb and they were to put the lamb's blood on the wooden doorposts, the wooden windows of every Israelite home. The angel of death seen the lamb's blood on the wood. The blood on the wood would pass over that house and spare the firstborn son. That wasn't all there was to God's command. It was much more. God also commanded Moses that every Israelite family prepare a sacrificial meal, a Passover meal. And they were to take unleavened bread and wine. Bread and wine. With it, they were to eat the lamb they sacrificed. God commanded that every Israelite family, every man, woman, and child, eat the flesh of the lamb. They had to eat the flesh of the lamb. They had to physically, actually consume that sacrifice. Now, if all the Israelites had done at the Passover was to fulfill God's command in a partial way, if all they did was to put the lamb's blood on wood doorposts of their homes, if they had not actually eaten the flesh of the lamb as God commanded them to do, at night at midnight they would have found their firstborn stuck down with the firstborn of the Egyptians. They had with the flesh of the lamb. So God's chosen people were saved by the blood of the lamb, and they were nourished by eating the flesh of the lamb as they began their march for the promised land. So the Passover lamb became the sacrifice of the old covenant. Now the question will often arise, why would God choose the lamb to be the symbol of Israel's salvation? It was simply because from the most ancient times, the lamb had always been seen as the most gentle, the most innocent of all of God's creatures. The blood of the lamb the blood of an animal had power to save the Israelites only because it was a sign, a symbol, a foreshadowing of an infinitely greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Redeemer, the Messiah, the suffering Lamb of God who was still to come, one whose coming was foretold through the ages by the prophets. Then, 12 centuries later, 1200 years after the Passover, St. John the Baptist. The last and the greatest of the prophets arrived in the scene of history, baptizing in the Jordan River. <coughs> and he saw Jesus coming toward him in the distance. And he called out, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the true Passover Lamb. He is the divine Lamb of God who opens the gates of heaven by shedding his precious blood once and for all. And then, three years later, three years after his baptism in the Jordan at the end of his public ministry, at the Last Supper, when he celebrated that last Passover with the apostles, Jesus Christ offered his life to the Father in sacrifice for our sins, and before he goes to Calvary, he shed his blood on the wood of the cross. He takes unleavened bread and wine, this time, he is the sacrificial lamb. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in memory of me. My brothers and sisters, 
Do you understand what our Lord did at the last supper? Do you understand what is happening every time you come together here to offer the Mass? Do you understand what is meant by the separation of the body and the blood? You know that every time Mass is offered, Father stands at the altar acting in the person of Christ. Standing in the place of Christ. He always consecrates bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. He always consecrates them separately, never together. Or have you ever seen your priest at Mass at the consecration hold up the bread and wine together? At the same time and say this is my body and blood you never have that but hope at least you never have that would be an invalid mass do you understand what is meant by the separation of the body and the blood what happens when the blood is poured out from the body the separation of the body and the blood means death death that is why the Mass is a true sacrifice. And when our Lord said those words, do this in memory of me, he instituted the priesthood of the new and everlasting covenant. By the sheer power of his word, God's word, Jesus Christ changed bread and wine into his own body and blood, and then he commanded the apostles to do the same thing. The only thing he would ever command them to do in memory of him. And down through the centuries, again, God commands his faithful people, his new covenant people, to eat the flesh of the lamb. And his body and blood of a sacrificial meal as God frees his new chosen people from a far, far worse form of slavery, which is slavery sin. The Old Testament Passover became the New Testament Eucharist. The sacrament of Christ's body and blood, and the Mass became the sacrifice of the new and everlasting covenant. And it is the greatest act of worship that the world has ever known or ever will know. What is the Mass? The Mass is the one supreme, eternal act of worship of the Son of God. The Mass is the mystical representation. The mystical renewal of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary, Calvary made present again, where the merits of his passion and death are applied to our time and our lives. What does that mean? It means simply this. Okay, now, you don't have to be a theologian or a scholar to get this. It means that all the graces and all of the blessings that flow from his sacrifice, his perfect obedience to the Father's will, the shedding of his precious blood, his atrocious agony on Calvary are applied to our time and to our lives and for our needs and for the needs of the entire church and the needs of the entire world. That is the power of the Mass. The Mass is the miracle where Jesus calls Christians every age and every time and every people and every nation 
to come to be present at the Last Supper in a mystical way. To come to Calvary to stand at the foot of the cross, to relive the hour of his passion, to keep the reality of his passion and his death and his undying love for us always in front of our eyes so we can never forget it. He comes to feed us with the bread from heaven that becomes his body by the power of God's word. And there is power in God's word. It is the same divine word that brought this world into creation out of nothing. He gives us the spiritual food that brings life and health to the soul. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb, and we are nourished by eating the flesh of the Lamb as we continue on our spiritual journey to the true promised land, which is God's heavenly kingdom. This is the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. Again, the summit and the source of the Christian life, the center and the source of true Christian worship for all time. And friends, that is why, whether you know it or not, whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you take it for granted or not, no matter where it is offered, no matter how poor the parish, no matter how small the congregation, no matter how small the church, no matter how ordinary the priests, the Mass is the greatest, the most powerful, the most awesome, the most sacred thing that takes place on the face of this earth. That is why nothing in this world can give God greater honor and glory and praise than the offering of the Mass. And that is why Padre Pio, Saint Pio Pietrocina, the great mystic of the last century, used to say, it would be easier for the world to exist without the Son than without the Mass. In our Gospel reading this evening, we see that in the synagogue at Capernaum, Jesus tried to prepare the apostles and the rest of his disciples for the miracle to come. And he tells them the words he has spoken are spirit and life. He says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Now that word real, is taken from the Greek word used by the Apostle St. John in his Gospel. The word alephos, alephos. It means just that, real, true, actual, literal. There's no way that Gospel word can be explained away or watered down. Our Lord meant exactly what he said. Real flesh, real blood, real food, real drink. It's the spirit that gives life. So did our Lord contradict himself? Impossible. God cannot contradict himself. 
That was the same. Listen. His flesh is more than just flesh. His sacred body is no ordinary flesh. Because his Eucharistic flesh is inseparably united to his divinity and to the Spirit of God. Jesus said the words he had spoken, the Spirit of life. In other words, what he was talking about was a great supernatural mystery. Something that could have no natural explanation. Something that could only be accepted with absolute faith and trust in his word. But in the gospel, you see, some of those disciples didn't have that kind of faith. They only had a kind of faith that was weak and wavering. They couldn't believe our Lord's words. They couldn't accept them. Then something happened that had never happened before. For the first time, and the only time in our Lord's public life that we know of, some of his own disciples turned their backs on him and walked away from him and never followed him. St. John has often wrote, as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and walked with him no more. But he revealed the Eucharist to them, they walked away from him. And maybe the most interesting thing of all is that the Gospel shows us clearly that our Lord did not try to stop them. He let them go. He didn't try to call them back. Our Lord did not say, no, no, wait, come back, let me explain. He didn't say, uh, no, no, you misunderstood me. I was only using a figure of speech. I was only using symbolic language. I was only talking about a symbolic presence. It was all just a metaphor, just a play on words. I didn't really mean that you would have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. No, Jesus didn't say that. They heard what he said. They knew what he said. They understood what he said. He let them go. He let them walk away. And he let them walk away because of their lack of faith. You know, the gift of faith that we have is a very precious thing. And I think we never really know or appreciate what a great gift faith is until you meet somebody who hasn't got Faith is the most precious gift that God can ever give. Because with it, we have the beginning of our salvation. And faith, remember, is a gift that can only come from God through His Holy Spirit. It's God's free gift. There's nothing we can do to merit that gift for ourselves. The Bible in the letter to the Hebrew says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Friends, don't you know It's probably the case that the hardest thing, the toughest thing our Lord will ever call on us to believe in is His real presence in the whole universe. Because in order to believe in, in His real presence, we've got to essentially disregard the evidence presented by our own senses and believe entirely in the Word of God. That is to say, we cannot see His real presence with our eyes. His presence is hidden, veiled, 
under the appearance, the species of bread and wine. We can't see his real presence with our eyes. We can only see it with the eyes of our minds. Our minds enlightened by the gift of faith. And faith is a gift that is only given to those who are humble. Humble to open their minds and their hearts to the truth. And the truth is not something, it's someone. It is somebody. It is Jesus Christ. The way and the truth and the life, and there is no other. That's why Jesus asked the apostles, Do you want to leave me too? St. Peter spoke up with the others and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, those words of everlasting life demand that we believe in the real presence of our Lord and the Holy Ghost. That is what the church has taught. That is what the people of God have believed and understood. That is what the whole company of the saints have testified to many of them in the shedding of their own blood for 2,000 years. You know, I'm always amazed at how many adult Catholics there are who don't know what the word Eucharist means. The word Eucharist, of course, is another Greek word. It means thanksgiving, to give thanks. Twice at the Last Supper, Jesus gave thanks to the Father. The Gospel says that he took bread and wine and he gave God thanks and praise. Do you recall that the first Christians, our Christian ancestors, many of them, had to risk their lives to receive our Lord in Holy Communion. When they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, if they were even overheard using that word, Eucharist, they could have been arrested and put in prison, and even put to death. So, to try to hide their activities, to try to keep their meetings, their liturgies and secrets, the Christians were forced to develop a code word, a password of sorts, it was the Latin word missa. Missa. A word that means dismissal or to be sent out. Because they all knew that every celebration of the Eucharist always ended with the words of dismissal, the words go in peace. And it's from that word missa, of course, that we have our word mass. In the Bible, we find the oldest, earliest account of the Last Supper and the institution of the Holy Eucharist in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 10 and 11. This is what St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 15. I am speaking to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing of love Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, St. Paul writes that what he received from the Lord, he handed on to us. Notice what he said, he received it from the Lord, not from any other man, but from the Lord himself. He wrote, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, what about the rest of the saints? The great saints who came after the apostles. They're those first centuries in the history of the church. The ones who died in the Roman persecutions. The most immediate successors of the apostles. What did they believe? What did they teach? What did they write about the believers? Friends, all the facts of history prove that they were unanimous in their belief and their understanding of the real presence, and there can be no question about it. What they believed then is what we still believe today. We can prove that over and over again. Let me read you a few selections here, saints. This was written by St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius of Antioch was the bishop of the first Christian city, the city of Antioch. He was a direct disciple of the Apostle St. John. St. Ignatius was arrested by the Romans and taken to Rome when he was thrown to the lions of the arena in the year 170. Now, as I read you this, keep in mind, St. Ignatius learned his Christian doctrine sitting at the feet of the Apostle St. John. He said this, I have no taste for corruptible food nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, and for drink I desire his blood. St. Justin, St. Justin Martyr, great scholar and philosopher of the early church, was beheaded by the Romans in the year 165. He wrote, No woman may share the Eucharist with us unless he believes that what we teach is true. We do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink, for we have been taught that as Jesus Christ our Savior became a man of flesh and blood by the power of the Word of God, so also the food that our flesh and blood assimilates for its nourishment becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of thanksgiving. St. Irenaeus was killed by the Romans in about the year 200. He wrote, When the chalice we mix and the bread we bake receive the word of God, our Eucharistic elements become the body and the blood of Christ by which our bodies live and grow. St. Augustine, greatest theologian of the early church, said this. Jesus took earth from earth because flesh is from the earth. And he took flesh of the flesh of Mary. He walked on earth in that same flesh. Gave that same flesh to us to be eaten for our salvation. Moreover, no one eats that flesh unless he has first adored it. And we sin by not adoring. Someone once asked, the Holy St. Francis of Assisi, what he did during all those long hours he spent before the Blessed Sacrament. St. Francis said, Friend, in reply, I ask you, what does the poor man do at the rich man's door? What does the sick man do in the presence of his physician? What does the thirsty man do before a clear running stream? What they do, I do before the Lord. the Lord. I pray, I adore, I love. Friends, 
saint every century very clearly expressed what we believe about the real presence. But here's the issue again. Listen. The doctrine we call the real presence of our Lord in the Holy Eucharist was never denied by any significant number of Christians until 1400 years after the death of the last apostle, St. John. The first 1500 years of the history of the church, it was not until the advent of the Protestant movement in the 16th century that the doctrine of real presence was denied by any significant number of Christians. So, the question for us is now and always has been, are we believe that the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, the Spirit of Truth, the guarantor of truth, the soul of the visible body of Christ, the same Holy Spirit our Lord promised at the Last Supper would lead and guide his apostolic church, his apostolic union in the fullness of truth, in all truth until the end of time, leading and guiding the entire church, the whole mystical body of Christ, the entire people of God in error and idolatry for the first 1,500 years of the history of the church, for the last 2,000 years. Oh, we believe that. If you believe that, you're in the wrong place tonight. Hmm? Friends, the words of the saints clearly express what we believe about the real presence, and it means that no one, no one should ever come forward to receive Holy Communion without a true faith in the real presence. St. Paul says, those who do will bring judgment upon themselves. That is why no one should ever come forward to receive Holy Communion conscious of being in a state of mortal sin. Those who do commit the sin of sacrilege. The Mass is feared in life. And if we claim that we don't get anything out of it, it can only be because we don't bring anything into it. Hmm? I always pray, God, we give every Christian the grace to see the Mass for what he intended it to be. A personal meeting, a personal encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, you know that as Catholic Christian men and women, we are supposed to be filled with the love of Christ. And what could be more natural than to want to be with the one that you love? It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if you really love someone, you want to be present to that person. If you don't want to be present to someone, there can be no true love. Precisely because true love can never be satisfied without being in the presence of the beloved. It's like when a man and a woman are in love with each other. When a man and a woman are in love with each other, they've always got to be together. They can't wait to get to each other. Jesus is always present to us in the Blessed Sacrament. 
He is here in extension of his glorified life in heaven. We have the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ really, truly, and substantially present. And in his glorified state, listen, in his glorified Eucharistic state, he is not subject to the limitations of space and time. That is how he can be present in all the tabernacles of the world. The Holy Eucharist is God with us, God among us, the source of all grace. It is Jesus Christ waiting for us to come here day and night, waiting to hear and answer our prayers, waiting to share the endless treasures of his grace with us and with the people that we love. Friends, here is the secret the saints do. When we come before our Lord the Blessed Sacrament and trust in the power of prayer, we draw strength from his strength. Here it is that we plug in to the source of power. He is the source of all grace. He is the one that makes all of our prayers and all of our efforts to bear fruit. I quoted Mother Teresa of Calcutta the other night. Mother Teresa used to say, people ask me, what will convert America and save the world? My answer is prayer. What we need is for every parish and every family to come before Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament in holy hours of prayer and adoration. She said, Time you spend with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament will be the best, the most profitable time you'll ever spend here on earth. St. John the Ernest said, If we could see with the vision of angels who it is who is present with us here, who it is we are receiving in Holy Communion, then we would die. He said that we would die, not of shock, not of fear, but of love. And also wonder at the greatness of God's love which keeps him present to us in the tabernacle. He said, If the angels envy human beings, it is for only one thing Holy Communion. At the last supper, when he gave us the Eucharist, Jesus said to the apostles, Without me, you can do nothing. He said, If you live in me, and my words say a part of you, you may ask what you will, and it'll be done true. You know, it's always been true to say, every one of us needs to have a personal relationship with Christ. The televangelists are harping on this constantly. They're constantly talking about the need to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Whenever I do that, I thank God for the Catholic. And I thank God for the Apostolic Church. I thank God for the Holy Eucharist because the high point, the summit of that personal relationship with Christ comes when we are united with Him spiritually and physically in the sacrament of His body and blood in Holy Communion where Jesus is present to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, remember this, don't ever forget it. It just can't get any more personal than that. Amen. Okay, now we will have a uh, tradition of blessed sacrament and uh, a short theory of adoration. We come and pray together. We'll close the benediction and after benediction for a short break, confessions again. Um, uh, tomorrow night we'll close our mission and
Father's mercy. And also, I understand tomorrow night after the mission, uh, there will be snacks and refreshments and a little gathering uh, downstairs in, in the parish hall. And uh, thank you all for coming again.